This is the Adoptive Mom Podcast. Adoption may look different for each family, but we need solidarity from other crazy people who took this leap. And that is what we do here. We encourage, we build up, we share the wins and losses. We lean on each other and we get through this together. Thanks for joining us. Hello, and welcome to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. As always, I am your host, Alex Fitton, and I am here to bring you lots and lots of episodes chock full of grace and encouragement along your journey, whether you're an adoptive mom, dad, support system, or any other piece of the adoption triad. This is season seven, episode two, or 95 overall. You guys, we're inching toward 100. I'm so excited. This episode is kicking off our series on the Enneagram. And y'all, I cannot even believe the incredible privilege I had to interview the godmother of the Enneagram, Suzanne Stabile. Suzanne is a highly sought after speaker and teacher known for her engaging laugh, personal vulnerability, and creative approach to Enneagram instruction. As an internationally recognized Enneagram master, Suzanne has conducted over 500 Enneagram workshops over the past 25 years. She has spoken to college audiences, hundreds of churches across America, and teaches regularly in the Baylor Healthcare System in Dallas in both the cancer and transplant hospitals. Additionally, she has often taught at Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation, as well as the North Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church, Christianity 21, the Emerging Christianity and Telemachus Conferences, the Southwest Regional Gathering of the Disciples of Christ, and Lady Lodge. That's a lot. You guys, that's how qualified she is. That's incredible. Suzanne's first book is The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, and her second book, The Path Between Us, an Enneagram Journey to Healthy Relationships, was released in April of 2018. Before we go talk to Suzanne, I want to ask you to ask yourself this question. Am I really as connected to Alex and the adoptive mom as I could be? If you're not signed up for Alex Mail, my weekly newsletter, then the answer is no. You guys, Scout's Honor, I'm not going to blow up your inbox with way too much info that you never actually getting around to listening to or reading. And I spend, I just send a special note to subscribers every Monday with direct links to the episode, show notes, info, and more. And all of that can be yours when you go to theadoptivemompodcast.com slash community. Okay, on with the show. All right, Suzanne, welcome to the show. I am so incredibly excited to have you on. Um, So how's it going? Good. It's really good. The sun's shining in Dallas today, and that's a nice break. We've had a lot of rain, and I'm good, and my people are good, so it's all good. Good. Yes. And as we record this, we're still doing social distancing uh, to a degree, and so we've all been inside so much. So yes, the nice weather is really good. Yeah, it's very nice. Yeah. So, okay. Um, I imagine that so many people listening right now already know who you are and what you do, but do you mind just giving us a little introduction into, um, into your, uh, just what you do and then tell us your adoption story. 
Um, I am a public teacher and public speaker, and I uh, speak primarily about the wisdom of the Enneagram. I travel uh, a lot and teach a lot, and we also have our own center here in Dallas. My husband is a United Methodist pastor, and we do work in life in the Trinity Ministries together, and we teach different places together, too. So I talk, essentially. I talk. <laughs> a lot of talking. Yes. No, I also talk. So it's you kind of like um, you love it, but then also you're kind of talked out by the end of the day. So I imagine that you're probably even more like that than me. Um, you know, I, I, um, I get talked out by things that I'm not particularly interested in, you know, when I'm trying to really invest myself in something that somebody else is interested in. Yeah. But I'm, you know, I'm good today. I'm, I'm all ready for you. (laughs) Hey, I will take it. That makes me happy. Um, all righty. Yeah. So just tell me your adoption story, um, and the journey into kind of like your passion for, um, adoption and the Enneagram and, and when you talk about them together. Okay. Um, my uh, parents, I'm 69, and my parents were born in 1903 and 1908. My dad was a doc, and my mom was a nurse. And in 1950, they had uh, two biological sons who were 18 and 15. And my dad went to the hospital one night to deliver a baby, and it was me. And my parents had not ever really talked about adoption and he came home after being at the hospital all night and said to my mom over breakfast I delivered a little girl last night who's available for adoption and I think we should adopt her and reportedly my mom got him another cup of coffee and said what are what are you talking about (laughs) and he was chief of staff at the hospital and he said I'd like for you to go to the hospital today and just spend the day with this little girl I think she's ours so uh, my mom did, and they took me home. So the one thing we know is that I must have been quite something as a newborn. I don't, I don't know about since, but uh, <laughs> that was a quick decision by really good, lovely, wonderful human beings. And um, my adoption was uneventful. Uh, no trauma beyond the trauma of adoption. And um, I was raised by uh, two people who were evolved enough to allow for lots of hard questions and who gave me a lot of room and who... um, When I was in the eighth grade, my mom and dad gave me a key to a lockbox at the bank. And my dad said, um, all of your adoption information is at the bank, and here's the key. And if you want to go get it by yourself, you can. If you want us to go with you, we will. If you don't want to go, you don't have to. Which was uh, confusing and uh, a lot of freedom at the same time. And... Um, You know, I'm uh, from a generation of people who were not told they were adopted frequently. And the reason I guess that I knew I was adopted before I could 
know what that meant is because my parents were um, so significant to their community that everybody knew them. So they couldn't just show up with a baby with no explanation. So while many people my age found out as adults that they were adopted or later on, I knew um, from before I knew what it meant that I was adopted. And um, I, I chose not to use that key until I had graduated from college, actually. And I was, I was the first women's basketball coach at SMU after Title IX. And um, my team from SMU went to Lubbock to play tech. And I grew up in a community about 60 miles from Lubbock. So I sent my team back. My parents were in Europe. I rented a car, drove to where I'm from, and went to the bank with my key. And uh, they had remodeled the bank. So I was back at, if I wanted to know, then my mom and dad were going to need to know. And I, um, wrongly, I think, felt like it would hurt them in some way for me to want that information. So I didn't pursue it. So I didn't get the information they had until after my mom died and she lived to be 92. So um, I got it when I was maybe 40 eight, I guess. Wow. Okay. Uh, so I knew I was adopted. I had access to find out birth parent information. I didn't use that access. And, um, then I did after my mom died, my husband, uh, for my 50th birthday said, you know, I don't know if you want to pursue, looking for your birth mother, but we have your original birth certificate and we know her name and there's no mention of a birth father anywhere in the information that I was given. Mm -hmm. And we know she was 21 when you were born. So, uh, we, we, I was 55 actually. So he said, we better get on it because she's 76 and, um, you, you're going to lose if you're interested. And he said, I spent some time on the internet and I can't find her, but um, I found a man I can hire who does that for a living. So um, we prayed about it and I went to see my therapist about it. And um, by the way, I'm, I think everybody should have a therapist. So that's a, yeah. Amen. Sister. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody should have one. And I think everybody should have a spiritual director. And, um, so uh, I talked to both of them, decided I'd probably regret it if I didn't. So um, he found her in 18 hours and she lived across the street from one of the venues where I had taught and uh, been part of big conferences. Yeah. And um, the guy said, don't write a letter and don't call. You should just go to the door. And then he said some stuff about 20% deny that you're their child or something, something. And I just didn't hear all that. And I didn't think I would want her to show up at my door. So I called. Mm -hmm. And her response to me was uh, anger, lots and lots of anger. She never denied that she was my birth mother, but a lot of anger. And she said, I don't ever want to hear from you again, ever. 
And um, we tried a couple of things that just didn't work. So I never met her, but I did um, have a conversation with some members of her family. And um, she died about four years after I found her, I guess, or maybe five from lung cancer. Mm. So I have no information about my birth father, and that's my experience of uh, pursuing that. I'm not sorry that I did it. Um, I'm, uh, I'm on the line about whether or not I'm supportive of open adoption or not. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of pros and cons to everything. And I, I, I just have a lot of questions about open adoption, uh, and about closed adoption. I don't really have a place to stand. And, um, I did decide I don't teach the Enneagram to children. Uh, 16 is my cutoff. You got to be 16 to come to Mm -hmm. what I do. Um, I teach parents a lot and I, um, I just decided that I thought if I could work with parents with Enneagram numbers and children with animals. Yeah then maybe I could help bridge uh, between adoptive parents and their children in a way that made it possible for the children to feel safe telling the truth. Yeah. It seems like so many adopted children feel like they have to be grateful all the time and they don't get to go through all that good stuff of, being an adolescent and saying, I hate you and, you know, all that stuff that, that children do. And I thought that maybe if we could figure out a way to use animals for the children, we could not really lay anything on them that they would have to live into or carry with them into adulthood, but could create a path for communication. And uh, I used it in post-adoptive services for a while, and it was quite helpful. And then my career kind of took off and I had to make choices about what I could do and couldn't do. And, um, that didn't make the cut for me, but I've, my daughter and son-in-law teach and they're working with parents and children. And my son works full time with us here. So we, my other daughter's a therapist who uses the Enneagram. So we figure we're gonna be able to get there a different way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that, you know, you you created a good segue for me because that's mainly what I want to talk to you about is how how trauma influences uh, the Enneagram and, and how we perceive the world, but not not for children. So with the, the Adoptive Mom podcast, I really try to focus on the adoptive mom. I feel like there's so many resources out there for adoptive parenting or for how to understand your children better. And there wasn't there weren't a lot of resources out there that would just with eyes on us as the adoptive moms. And so, and what we go through. So obviously we, um, we have a lot to talk about here, um, especially when it comes to how we as moms, uh, parent, um, through the lens of the Enneagram. So do you mind just taking a second and, um, you are the first episode in our Enneagram and adoption series. So just take a second and um, tell us what the Enneagram is. I'm assuming that all of the people listening right now know their type, or at least have a good understanding of what they're what they're listening to, but um, maybe just tell us what the the big overview is. Um, well, the big overview is the enneagram is very very old. It's ancient wisdom. 
Um, it's global wisdom. Mm-hmm. It is found in every faith belief. And um, nothing was published about it until the 1970s. But it was around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before that. And uh, it has recently become uh, a very trendy thing to know about. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's a good side to that and a not so good side to that. But that's true of all things, I think. Yeah. Um, my best way of describing the Enneagram is to say that it's nine ways of seeing. And all people fall into one of those nine ways of seeing. And then there are unending differences beyond that. But it has to do with uh, what you focus on and how you take in information. And um, that has to do with where you're located on the Enneagram. And it has to do with the three centers of intelligence, which are thinking, feeling, and doing. And one of those is dominant for each of us. One supports the dominant and one is repressed. And I think it uh, dispels the myth that we're all pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. We're actually not pretty much the same. Thank goodness, right? And uh, and it it, um, makes room not only for difference, but for respect for difference Mm -hmm. and for compassion around difference. Yes. Um, My goal, I think, in learning the Enneagram years ago, 30-something years ago, was that I wanted to contribute to a more compassionate world. Mm Mm-hmm. And I understand that there are people who think the Enneagram is uh, reductive. And I don't think that's true. I think it's quite expansive. And people who think it's reductive just don't know very much about it. And that's okay. And there are people who say, um, I don't want to be in a box. And my response is, I I don't put you in a box. I just show you the box that you're already in. (laughs) Yes. And um, your Enneagram space or type or number is uh, determined by motivation and not by behavior. Mm -hmm. So that means assigning numbers to other people is very inadequate. And it robs other people of the journey. So that's not a good thing to do. And I think there are particular gifts and particular weaknesses in all nine numbers for adoptive moms and biological moms and uh, train engineers and airline pilots and, 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 and. (laughs) Okay. So, yeah, I, I think that you, you hit on something, you know, not to type other people, which, you know, I have been guilty of before I studied deeper, you know, when I was just like, what is this? And uh, started learning about it. And I actually, I did things the way that you say not to do them because I didn't know anything else. And I took a test and it said that I was a one. And then I realized that you're not supposed to do that. And so then I started reading and I feel like I kind of robbed myself of the joy of getting to figure that out for myself because I, you know, I read and I am in fact a one. Um, but I didn't get to, I feel like I didn't get to figure that out for myself. And so you 
always say that the best way to learn is through oral teaching or um, reading about it or something like that. So for those that are listening that don't know their type yet, um, how should they or should they not figure that out for themselves? Well, I'm not a fan of the tests or the indicators, mm-hmm. and I'm the lone holdout, I suppose, for that, but I'm I'm not going to change. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very adaptable, but not about that. Um, if you're just absolutely hell-bent on taking a test, then take the long-form uh, Enneagram Institute test, which is Rizzo and Hudson's test. You have to pay for it online. Mm-hmm. It's the best of them. It's 140 questions, and it's the best. Um, But try not to do that. There are lots of other options. There are people like me who teach narrative tradition. Uh, Everything I teach is recorded if you want to learn it from me. Um, The two books that uh, are my work, um, The Road Back to You and The Path Between Us, are both easy reads and they're also written in narrative style and when it's narrative style you have a better chance of finding yourself truly finding yourself because you get to hear the same thing three or four ways and then you you are able to pretty much find yourself in that process mm-hmm. And it's a lot of good work to do, but if you're working on the wrong number, <laughs> then it doesn't help very much. And there are people who want to be a certain number. Uh, my guess is you don't want to be a one. Uh, most ones would <laughs> uh, just as soon not be. We're not a lot of fun um, at parties. Yeah. <laughs> I'd kind of like to be a nine. My husband's a nine and, um, I'm a two, but he's a nine and he's laid back all the time and not worried. And that looks good to me, but that's not how I'm put together and not who I am. Yeah. And once you know uh, what your number is, um, then um, if you read or listen to the whole workshop taught orally, you get an opportunity to hear about other people in a way that increases your compassion for how they do life and why they do things differently than you do. And um, I um, think that it teaches you to make room for difference in other people and maybe particularly difference in adopted children. Yes. I also think it dispels the myth that our children are going to be, if they're biological children, they're going to be like us. Mm-hmm. Um, none of my biological children are my number. Um, and um, I, I, I think it um, sets the table for us to explore one another rather than make assumptions about one another. The Enneagram in terms of the context that you and I are talking about uh, also shows you the best part of you and the worst part of you. Mm -hmm. And they usually come from exactly the same place. So um, usually the best part of you is also the worst part of you. And the lovely thing about the Enneagram is that it um, 
it kind of teaches you where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are. And if you're looking at a weakness, the Enneagram is set up in a way to help you fix it if you want to. Yeah. And um, that's very helpful too. Yes. And I think that, you know, when we're looking at our kids and I know you say not to certainly not to type your kids or um, put them in that box while they're still little, but I think that just knowing the other types, like what you said, learning about, learning about other people's personalities and, and how they see the world via their Enneagram number, it kind of does help you to look at your children differently and to just wonder, you know, I wonder what motivated them to act that way. I wonder why this hurts them so badly, but not their sibling, you know, just things like that. And I love that it gives you another language to look at the world through and to, like you said, have more compassion for the way others see the same things you see, but just, you know, in different ways. Um, and I love that, but you also were, um, talking about biology and how, um, and how that works with adopted kids. And I think that for, um, for us as adoptive moms, when we look at our adopted kids, uh, a lot of the times I think that we see their trauma and we feel like it influences who they are as a person or their Enneagram number. And that is not what you believe, right? Right. Um, I think it influences how they behave, but not who they are. Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, let me try to talk about that this way. Okay. Um, once you know your number, then all the work is on you to be as healthy as you can be in your number. You're the same number all your life. I believe that you're genetically predisposed to be the number that you are. Um, certainly, uh, nurturing affects you. Uh, and affects how you see the world, but it doesn't change your Enneagram number, mm -hmm. nor does trauma. And when I teach the Enneagram, I talk about the fact that at any given time, you can be healthy in, in healthy space, average space, unhealthy space, excess in your number, or pathological. Mm -hmm. And um, if you experience trauma, then you end up having a much farther climb to be able to stay in the top half of average or the bottom half of healthy. It, it's uh, I, to people who say, oh, I'm healthy all the time. Then I say, oh, no, 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 you're for sure sick. And the goal uh, is, I think, to stay in as much as you can in the bottom half of healthy range and the top half of average mm -hmm. trauma causes most people, uh, regardless of age to behave from a place of excess in their number, uh, which is unhealthy and usually has very negative consequences and ends up leaving those children or those people with a farther climb to be able to maintain healthy, high average behavior. Yes. So when I, when I teed up this interview, I was saying that we are, um, I think that the tendency when we're talking about adoption is to talk about the kids, um, which is great. There's so much space for that. And that is so necessary in our, um, our rhetoric and just the studies that we do as adoptive parents. But for the purposes of this podcast, we, we want to focus our eyes back on the adoptive mom. So I love what you just said about, about, uh, the spectrum of our numbers and, and where we go in stress and where we go in health. And, um, I love what you said on another podcast actually, which was that that can fluctuate 
a lot quicker than we think it can, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about adults as us, um, we're dealing with, especially for those of us that have adopted through foster care or internationally or something like that, you know, we're experiencing a lot of stress a lot of the time. Um, so what does that look like as far as that spectrum that you described for us on a normal basis? Um, well, um, let me, now I'm going to run through the numbers real quick. Okay. Um, but I'm going to do that by talking about that from an adoptive mom possible perspective. Okay. Based on what I know about those nine numbers. So for you as a one, um, you have a sense that you've always had that you are flawed in some way mm -hmm. and you carry that all the time. You also have this added little extra party favor of a critic that lives in your head that tells you that you're not doing things right and you're not good. And I feel sure for ones who have adopted children, the critic has said, you should not have adopted and you're not good at this and you're never going to be. And, 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 <laughs> and so you have to manage all of that. Mm -hmm. And you have managed believing that there's something significantly wrong with you by trying to be right or correct. So since you don't think you're good enough, you try desperately to be correct or to be right, which causes comparative thinking. So you compare yourself to other moms and how they do it and how their kids might be thriving and one of yours isn't or uh, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And that's a whipping. It's just a whipping that is um, really difficult to manage along with managing children, often children who've experienced trauma. So, for you to use my language, find a place to stand, mm -hmm. you have to have a way of knowing about your own goodness and your own competence and your own commitment to the children that you are adopting or have adopted. Mm. And um, there's not just one right way to do that which is difficult for some numbers. Are you sure? <laughs> I'm positive. I'm absolutely sure. I don't like that as a one. I want there to be I, one I right know. way. Yeah, yeah. And then you <laughs> want to do that one right way perfectly. Yes, and, and I want the system yeah. to always work. I don't want my kids to yeah. change, so I yeah. have to adapt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of adapting. Yes. So I think you start every day, uh, all nine numbers, with it is very courageous and generous of me to have made room in my heart and my life for a child mm. that uh, is not my biological child. That's how I feel about my parents. I feel like it was very courageous and very generous of them to make room so that I could fully be part of the life that they shared. And um, as a one, you're going to have to let go of the idea that there's a perfect way to do that because there isn't. As a two, um, you know, we are uh, the number on the Enneagram who uh, we feel other people's feelings, but we don't know what we feel. Mm -hmm. And we sense other people's feelings and then can just sense what they feel and meet their need. 
And I'm real good at that, frankly, um, with my husband who I adore and my four children and their spouses and my nine grandchildren. And uh, I am terrible at knowing what I feel. And you cannot long-term be a good adoptive mom if you don't know what you feel. You can't just do life based on sensing and meeting the needs of other people. At some point, you have to know what you need and you have to be able to name that need and you have to be able to get it met. Yeah. And for threes, um, the mountain they're climbing is that they think they're loved for what they do and not for who they are. And so their measure for life is whether or not they're successful. And they're goal setters. They set short-term goals and long-term goals and meet them all, usually. And then if they've met all their goals and they get a little bored, they set goals for other people. My husband's a three, by the way. So yes, so you know that, don't you? Yes. You know what we're talking it's about, then, bells. don't you? Yes, and uh, it's real important to have goals in life and to be real flexible about them, uh, because when you set goals for children, mm-hmm. that's a setup for some success and some failure, yeah. and there's not a control of how that's going to be. Um, if you're a four adoptive mom, then, um, you are the most complex of all the numbers. You're comfortable with longing and melancholy and you live in a, an if only space. So if you're not careful, you end up in space of if only I could have had my own own baby, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. If only, if only, if only, if only we'd been able to adopt a girl instead of a boy. If only that's an unending list of things that won't get you anywhere. And you have to be able as a four adoptive mom to live into this is what it is. And I am who I am. And I am suited to be a really good but imperfect parent. And I'm going to have to let go of wishing things were other than they are, Mm -hmm. which is very difficult for fours to do. Five adoptive moms I have a particular heart for because I've had a particular experience with. I uh, worked for, I think, four years in a post-adoptive post-adoption services nonprofit here in Dallas. And um, I taught the parents and we worked with the children. And um, um, it turns out that there were a number of single moms in that group who were fives on the Enneagram. Hmm. So the most important thing for people to know about fives is that they wake up every day with a limited amount of energy. And uh, it's you, you can't store up like you, you get the same amount every morning. And if you go to sleep, it goes away. And then you start over the next day. And when you run out, you run out. There's not a well that you can dig from. You're, you're out. Yeah. So fives generally 
don't like a lot of touching because that takes energy from them. They uh, struggle with being too needed. And often, though not always, adopted children um, have attachment disorders Mm -hmm. and have a lot of need for a lot of affection that's sometimes a challenge for five moms to give. Mm -hmm. That's problematic. It can be managed and handled, but it's problematic. Uh, My mom was a five on the Enneagram and uh, I'm a two. I needed lots of affection and she figured it out. It can, it can work. It's just uh, requires some adapting. Yeah. I've heard a five and a two pairing is pretty difficult often, right? Um, Our relationship was pretty great, but she absolutely knew how to handle me. I think a five and two couple or five and two as friends would be more difficult Mm -hmm. than a parent child relationship. Okay. Um, Although, you know, if, if a five doesn't have, if a five parent doesn't understand her limited resources in terms of physical energy, it would be really tricky. I would think. Um, sixes are, um, the number on the Enneagram that's the most concerned about the common good. I think there are more sixes than any other number. And I think there are fewer fours than any other number. Mm -hmm. Um, sixes, unfortunately don't trust themselves. Uh, they look to authority figures too much when they can go inside themselves and get what they need. They just don't trust that. I always say to them, we trust you. You can trust yourself. We, we trust you. And safety is a big, big deal for them. Mm-hmm. So they would feel responsible for creating safe space, very safe space for themselves and for the children. And that's tricky. And they would have trouble following their intuitive instincts about caring for children who had experienced trauma because they don't trust themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and parenting can either teach you to do that or um, teach you that you can't, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that happens. Sevens um, are fun and uh, lively and creative and wonderful. And uh, they reframe things in real time. And they reframe every negative into a positive faster than they can fully take it in as a negative. Mm. And reframing uh, is not a particularly good skill for being an adoptive parent. Yeah, I can see that. Because things are what they are and they have to be that. Yeah. Um, Eights are very aggressive and uh, they think they have the right answer for most things. And um, I don't think there is a better Enneagram type 
to be advocates for children than AIDS. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give you an example using animals in a minute, but AIDS can be too aggressive for children who have experienced trauma. Mm. And they can be too aggressive about making a family cohere when it takes time Mm. for families to cohere. Um, And they have a lot, a lot to bring in terms of um, excitement about life and consistent parenting and a lot of, a lot of good stuff. Nines. um, Their gift is their problem. Actually, that's true for all of us, but particularly speaking about adoption, nines see at least two sides to everything. And that's a lovely gift. And at the very same time, it's a big problem. And certainly there are a minimum of two sides to things, most things that go on in a relationship between a child and an adoptive parent. And I don't know that there's uh, an easy way around that. But nines have to be like sevens have to not reframe and eights have to not push too hard. Nines have to be very careful about not taking a stand because there are two sides to everything and two or more points of view and all that. So let me run through the animals real quick. Is that all right? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, ones are worker bees. Okay, fair, fair. <laughs> yep. And twos are kangaroos. Um, did you know that uh, a kangaroo with a toddler and a newborn can offer different milk for each? No. Oh, yeah. Like, that's what we do. We twos. We can do Why would unbelievable you not split things. yourself into two? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you can carry a, a, a baby in your pouch forever like surely you can see the positive and the negative of all that all right uh threes are eagles okay fours are butterflies fives are owls sixes are bunny rabbits sevens are monkeys eights are lions and nines are turtles i i love that so much And if you read about the animals, Mm -hmm. your children will generally find both themselves and you. Okay. And if you're working in uh, therapy or on your relationship, Mm -hmm. then do you see that it's much easier for a child to say, bunny rabbits are afraid of lions than it would be for a child to say, I'm afraid of you. Yeah. Right? Oh, my goodness. It's yes. a, yeah, it's, it's pretty special stuff. And I asked our daughter, Joey, to work on the animals when I was working with the parents and she was working with the children as an adult. And she, uh, instead of trying to find animals that fit the numbers, she just read about animals. And then she found them that way. And I think she's spot on. They've served us very well for a number of years. I love it so much. I, I've, so like I said, I've, I've listened to you talk about your daughter and the work that she's doing with children. And it's so fascinating. I love that you guys are doing this. Um, so 
what I would love to pivot to right now is just now that you've been so gracious to run through those numbers and explain um, how how we might see adoption through the lens of our number. Um, I I am very curious about this uh, the the growth and stress numbers, and I know that you have said multiple times that wings are not as important as where you go in growth and where you go in stress. And I think that as adoptive moms who are dealing with, you know, secondary trauma and just, um, we're having to walk our children through really, really big feelings all the time. Um, we are often in stress. (laughs) Imagine that. So how, how should we be treating our relationship with our stress number? Okay. Um, a lot of people, let me just say, Alex, that a lot of people use growth and stress. I use security and stress. Okay. And the reason I do that is because I know exactly what those two things mean. Yeah. I know when I feel stressed and I know when I feel secure and I think everybody else does too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Richard Roy, who taught me uses consolation, true consolation and false consolation. And he's brilliant and smart and I love him. And I don't know what that means. (laughs) And I, in a heartbeat, know what stress and security mean. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to start, and I, and I want I'm going to say this twice because it's incredibly important. Mm-hmm. You cannot take care of yourself without the number you go to in stress. You cannot take care of yourself without behavior from the number that you go to in stress. And you cannot experience any kind of holistic healing without the behavior of the number that you go to in security. So we don't have time to talk about security today. And it doesn't happen all that often anyway, I don't think. (laughs) So um, let's let's talk uh, for a minute about what happens um, in stress. Okay. Um, First of all, uh, we talked earlier about how in your number you can be healthy, average, unhealthy, excess, pathological. Yes. Well, that's also true in stress. Mm-hmm. So people who teach that you go to the low side of your stress number and the high side of your security number, I don't agree with. Yeah, I think the whole range is available to you. And because you can't take care of yourself without the number you go to in stress, then it's kind of important that you go to the high side of the number you go to in stress, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's what makes sense. Mm -hmm. And you don't necessarily stay there for a long period of time. Uh, What I would like for your listeners to know is that you intuitively, if you are in a pretty good place, let's say you're in average top half of average space and something happens as a parent and you start to get stressed and you fall down through average and then you start, you fall down through unhealthy and then you get into excess in your number for a little while, then you will intuitively move to your stress number. Right. But with some work, you can catch yourself way up here in the bottom half of average Mm -hmm. and think I'm so stressed. And when I've been over here in my stress number, I've learned to do these things. And it's so helpful. I'm going to do that now and save myself and my child the pain of me going all the way down through unhealthy and excess in my number before I call on that 
thing that's helpful to me and that helps me take care of myself because as an adoptive mom, if you cannot take care of yourself, you cannot effectively take care of your child. And unfortunately, adoptive and non-adoptive moms too often believe that they're always in an airplane and that there's always going to be this huge thing. And they didn't listen when the flight attendant said, get oxygen for yourself first and then your child. And it doesn't help if you don't take care of yourself while, during, before you try to care for a child who's struggling. Because when you put a mess with a mess, you get a bigger mess. Yes. Every time. Let all that wash over me. Man. And what I want to wash over you is that it would be no easier, maybe even more complex, to try to remember to do that as a biological mom because biological moms often don't uh, know to step back and think we're not the same, this child and me. Mm. And here's what I think. Adopting a child should never be to solve a problem for the parent or for the child. Okay. Adopting a child is to love a child. Mm -hmm. If it's to solve a problem, then there's an assumption that there's a problem that that child hasn't presented you with yet unless you fostered that child, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So I, I, I hope that you can imagine how I feel about uh, women who adopt children because uh, I don't know where I would be. And I hope you can hear me say that um, my children, all four biological children, have some complexities that are very tricky. Mm. And I hope you can hear me say that I think there is a lack of information about trauma in children who are adopted that sets you apart as heroes and um, strong and people I think are worthy of parades and confetti and all kinds of really great stuff. Yes. And oh, I, I love the, I love the, um, just the highlight of there being more information hopefully to come about trauma and especially more trauma informed therapists, because, um, I heard you say somewhere else that there, you know, there are bad therapists, not bad, but just ill-equipped for our intricate problems. And especially when we're dealing with kids with trauma. So I just, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Where are you Alex in the world? Uh, location wise. Uh huh. <laughs> Where do you live? <laughs> Northwest Arkansas. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, my boot camps are both full except my table. 
And I'm inviting you to, to sit in a chair at my table because uh, as my guest, because at this year's boot camp, if we get to have them or when we get to have them, we'll just keep putting them off till we have them. <laughs> uh, we're talking about uh, the Enneagram and trauma. And uh, a woman whose name is Barbara Ryla, who's a therapist friend of mine. Yeah, uh, girl. Yeah. She's phenomenal. Yeah. So you come on and then you can teach all your listeners what you learn. And um, I'm going to be doing more work like that in the future. Um, this is kind of a kickoff for that. And I, you just come on and okay. then we'll figure out how to get it to your listeners so they can hear it too. So I'll tell Joel to get in touch with you. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like a hundred percent. Great. Um, so here's, here's what I want to say. Um, man, I've met some good parents who are biological parents mm -hmm. and I've met some very inadequate parents who are biological parents. And I think adoptive moms uh, so quickly believe that they're ill-equipped or inadequate or uh, all the things that I think you're probably not and certainly not more than biological moms. Mm. And I think Enneagram work is good for all of you. And I um, don't have time to go through all the numbers uh, to talk about stress. So I'll do two. How about that? Okay. Deal. All right. What two numbers you want me to do? I mean, what number do you want me to do besides one? Okay. I was about to say selfishly, I'm going I'm to choose one. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, will you do four as well? Since she said that that was, um, I don't know. I think that maybe because that's where I go in stress. So I'm being selfish again, but yeah, one and four. All right. So those are very uh, different moves. Yes. So uh, when one goes to stress um, to four, it's a place, uh, it's usually the bottom of four mm -hmm. until you learn, until I get through with you. Right. And then you upper. And when you go to the bottom of four, there's longing and if only and disillusionment and uh, melancholy. I'm probably not the right person for this. And I thought I was. I'm never going to get this right. I'm sure other moms aren't having the same problems I'm having. I don't know what made me think that I could or should do this. Um, but the high side of four, once you learn to go there and stress, mm -hmm. is creativity and understanding. And listen to this gift that we get, that fours have, and we can learn from fours to use. Fours are the only number on the Enneagram that can bear witness to pain without having to fix it. Mm. Yeah. Right? We're fixers. And then when we can't fix something, we think we're failures. Yeah. And by we, I mean primarily you. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true, though. <laughs> So uh, what you want to do, if you've done a Know Your Number workshop or if you've read either one of the, my books, mm -hmm. what you want to do is, you know you're a one. You don't need any help with that, it seems. 
I mean, you need a lot of help, but nothing that you're going to get in the immediate time because everybody needs a lot of help, not just you. Oh, yeah. So what you want to do is spend three or four months just reading about fours. Okay. And reading about healthy fours. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So then you can learn what it looks like to draw from the high healthy side of the number that you are intuitively going to go to when you're so stressed, you don't know how to breathe. That is very interesting. And then you can choose that. Yeah. Okay. No, I love that because I think, I mean, for my, for my personal journey, it was, it was a lot like that where I, I'll be honest, I held a lot of judgment for fours because I was like, they're so dramatic and moody. And then I, you know, caught myself going there so much. And then, um, it was actually, uh, my therapist was like, but fours are also amazing. They're creative and they see beauty yeah. in the pain that you see all the time because you're an adoptive mom. And it was only then that I started appreciating that. Um, right. and then when I heard you say that you, you can't heal unless you can appreciate those things, I was like, oh, felt so known. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's how you take care of yourself. Yeah. Right. All right. So four and two. Um, fours go to two in stress and, uh, on the low side of two, um, they are, um, icky and cloying and they need too much attention and they want everybody to be their friend, including their children and, uh, ugh. <laughs> uh but on the high side of two, <laughs> Um, here's an important thing. Fours are always focused inward. Twos are always focused outward. Mm -hmm. So when we meet on that line, I'm able as a two to have some balance and know when to focus outward and when to focus inward. And fours learn to know when to focus outward and when to focus inward. And what fours, one thing, adoptive moms who are fours need in stress, they need, and that is to reach out more and to look outside of themselves more and to turn to other people more and not in a, a, a real deep way, but in a good grief, I'm having trouble parenting this week. I feel like I'm terrible at it, right? And while focusing outside themselves, they pick up things that help them that they're not going to find always being focused inward. On the other hand, just to keep talking through the line, mm -hmm. as a two, uh, I'm working on a new book right now, and I can't write focused outward. Mm -hmm. I have to go to four space which is my security space yeah. to get what's inside me out of me. Mm -hmm. Right. Fours in Nashville who are uh, artists and who write music without going to one, they would never get it on paper. Yeah. They wouldn't get it done. Right. Mm -hmm. So all numbers have a gift. And somehow in this mystical wisdom of the Enneagram, you are led by arrows and lines on the Enneagram to the places you need to go to get stuff to help you. And I just don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. 
right? Like I'm all about it. Yeah. I love all that. Oh, and how, just how encouraging, like seriously. I mean, like I said, uh, as adoptive moms, we're often kind of hanging out in stress all the time. And so to have some positivity attributed to that and to say it doesn't all have to suck. We don't have to throw our hands in the air every single day. Um, I don't know. Just thank you. Thank you for handing us that. Um, sure. Are you cool with some of these closing questions? Yeah, you can ask. I told you, you can ask me anything. Okay. So you are a two. And so um, what, using just like stereotypes, what is the most overtly two thing about you? I talk to strangers or telephone poles or <laughs> <whatever>. <laughs> I build relationships with everybody that I encounter or try to. Yeah. Love it. Uh, I'm certainly grateful for that in this moment. (laughs) Um, What is your favorite thing about being a two? I'm kind. Yeah. Okay. What do you wish every mom knew about her number going into adoption? Um, that your number doesn't determine your capacity for loving or for parenting or for messing up or for, uh, feeling inadequate or for, uh, loving, disgusting breakfast on mother's day. (laughs) It, um, you know, I spend my time teaching people who they're not because your personality just covers your essence. You know that in your children, their personality is just covering up essence and they have personality in order to make it till they get to the safety of your house, right? Yeah. And we all have a personality and underneath it, uh, it's just pure gold. Good stuff. Um, okay. The last question that I always ask is what is your biggest piece of advice or encouragement for adoptive moms? Um, and for you just in relation to the Enneagram. Learn it. Okay. Short and sweet. Learn the Enneagram and, uh, uh, cut yourself some slack. Parenting is really hard. Parenting children who've experienced trauma is really hard. Parenting children who have special needs is really hard. Parenting children who are extra smart is equally hard. And parents have a tendency to carry shame about their parenting. And so they aren't honest about how hard it is. And adoptive moms who wanted a baby badly enough to adopt one really don't think it's okay to have a horrible day as a mom and wish you weren't one. And you get to. Just like so much good stuff. Like I said, uh, there are, as I talk for a living, so I always know whenever I catch myself, like just staring into space, cause I'm listening or like letting it, you know, process. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to say something now. Um, <laughs> so just thank you so, so much. Um, goodness. And where, I mean, where can we find you? I, I, yeah, we just, we, everyone needs to find you and follow you in all the places. 
SuzanneStabile.com will get you everything. Okay. And we'll be on the lookout for your new book and um, definitely sign up for one of our workshops. I know you said they're full, but there'll be new ones coming out, right? Boot camps are full. I've got workshops that are open all over the country that we just postponed everything. We didn't cancel anything. Uh, The two boot camps are full, but they fill pretty fast. So uh, you could get your name on a waiting list since your adoptive moms, this would be a good one for you. Mm -hmm. Um, So think about that. And, um, you know, uh, be nice to yourself. Um, okay. Well, thank you. And I'll have all of that in the show notes, but thank you so much, Suzanne, for joining us today. You're welcome, Alex. Thank you so much for listening to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I hope you found encouragement here. I need you to know that you are enough and you're doing a great job. We are all in this together and I am over here cheering you on. Don't forget to check out show notes for this episode and other resources at theadoptivemompodcast.com. Thanks for joining us.